Welcome to the U Triumph podcast, where we explore the triumphs and tribulations of extraordinary leaders from diverse backgrounds. I'm your host, Trevor Sterling, and across the podcast, I hope to inspire success by highlighting that irrespective of social background or personal characteristics, with fair opportunity and the appropriate mindset, ultimately anyone can be successful. From incredible achievements to key life lessons learned, the goal is to shed insights into the mindset, motivations, and stories behind the success. Because you triumph if you believe. Welcome to this You Triumph Breakthrough Series podcast. Today is a special day because of the very special guests that I have. In uh, 2021, I made history becoming the first uh, black senior partner in a top 100 uh, UK law firm. So I'm acutely aware, being that I'm only one of 90 black partners in this country, how difficult it can be to break through. Um, During my uh, recent years, I've spent a lot of time listening to the experiences of others, whether it be young people who tell me that they feel they can only be what they can see, or more senior people who tell me that it has been really difficult for them to break through. But every now and again, you come across somebody who's not just broken through, they've broken through and then some. What they have done in their careers has been absolutely remarkable, but they've also committed so much time to giving back. And so today, I'm delighted to speak to one such person, and that is Martin P. Griffiths, trauma surgeon at Royal London. Martin, welcome to you, Triumph. Thank you for joining me uh, today. <laughs> Hello, Trevor. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well. I'm very well. Now, I'm going to declare... Uh, an interest here. Martin and I are good friends. We go back a while, but actually it's interesting how we met because I think <laughs> we were both giving talks at St. George's uh, Hospital uh, in Southwest London. And I, I listened to you and saw you. And the one thing that was going through my mind, I, I'm scared to ask what was going through your mind when you saw me because I gave a talk as well. But what was going through my mind when I saw you was, wow, uh, a black trauma surgeon, you know, children from my background, you know, that is incredible. And I, you know, I, I often feel alone in the, in the legal world, but it was incredible to see you. Uh, and here we are, lawyer, trauma surgeon, uh, together. So really pleased to be speaking to you. Oh, absolute pleasure, mate. You know, it's, it's always good to meet um, people who are smashing it in other careers and, and you know, you're very modest in your, own, in your own, your own achievements. And I think, you know, um, like people like us are, are part of a small but emerging group of people of colour who are doing who are doing things the right way for the right people. And I think you know I'm 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 always willing and passionate to communicate with people about how we can do these things better and share that message. So it's an absolute joy to be here, mate. So we're going to follow a ladder framework. You know, my saying is don't just aspire to climb the ladder, aspire to be the ladder. So we're going to pretend we're on a ladder. We're going to start with the top rung, which is for you to tell us. Uh, where you are now, you know, what, what is success? What does that look like? And then we're going to go to the bottom of the ladder, where it all started, middle of the ladder, challenges you face. So top rung of the ladder, what, what is your position, Martin? What, what position do you hold? Right, here's a problem. I've got, I've got a lot of hats here, Trevor. Okay, fine. So um, my 
clinical role as a consultant, consultant trauma surgeon at the Royal London in, in, in Whitechapel, and I was a um, the lead for trauma surgery in the past. I don't do that so much now. Um, I'm also, um, I have a role in violence reduction in NHS England and NHS London. I'm a clinical director uh, for NHS London's violence reduction network and a, and a national clinical director for NHS England. And I was the first person appointed that role. I'm also um, I'm a, a Deputy Lieutenant of Greater London. I work with um, the Lord Lieutenant supporting the monarch and their activities within, within the London community. Um, and I'm, I'm a trustee of a number of charities, including Charlton Athletic, and an ambassador uh, to, uh, obviously, May Seacole Trust, and <clears throat> a patron of St Giles' Trust, another great charity that work within the community, prison community to do work with the, as, as those people emerge from, the, from, from, that, from that secure estate. I'm also a bit of an activist, yeah, and also a parent to two fantastic boys who um, I adopted when they were three, and they're and they're lovely and monsters. So apart from that, I'm I'm pretty quiet. Okay, so we've got quite a bit to unpack there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just just I'm just going to go back to one of the, the obviously trauma surgeon, vascular surgeon. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. A lot of people ask themselves, what's a vascular surgeon? I think you said to me once, it's not the bones, not the organs. <laughs> it's mainly plumbing. Plumbing is mainly, it's mainly plumbing stuff. I don't, I don't do hearts, let's been stabbed in it. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, trauma is basically emergency general surgery and I provide surgical practice, surgical care to people who are victims of injury um, and, and I coordinate and lead that team and I'm, I'm we're a surgical practitioner. So I do surgery from pretty much the ears down in acute scenarios and lead those teams. I've been doing that for a long time now. Um, and that's and that's and that's combined to a sort of management role within within that practice and service, and also being a being a major trauma trainer. So I've trained generations of surgeons. Literally today, one of my one of my previous um, trainers was appointed to a consultant post in Northwest London. So I'm actually delighted for her, which is brilliant. And uh, one of my passions is bringing through talent for where it might be to become clinicians in this various very austere, very exacting uh, profession. So I love training and trauma. I love practicing as a as a as a trauma and vascular surgeon because it's it's hard and it's and it's and it's and it's you know it's it's really involving but it means working with people, not just clinicians but non clinical leaders, social care teams, um, therapists, non doctors, um, community people to make sure that, that that we have a holistic approach to supporting the victims of injury and also offering better off a pre and post event. Hence my interest in sort of injury prevention as well and the violence reduction piece that came onto it. So, I mean, Royal London is certainly the busiest major trauma centre in London. <laughs> probably the busiest in the country, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's probably one, probably the busiest penetrating trauma in Western Europe, um, a, a conflict aside. And we've had a long tradition of delivering high-quality trauma care training and, and education, um, as well as having an amazing research branch as well. And I think that for me... Working in a community that's so affected by violence and leaving that practice for a period of time has really given me the skills and humility to work in that space and also a, a reason to do more than just operate. Not just sewing up holes, but actually try to understand why things happen. And the, de the demographics around rural London uh, has led to you having a massive involvement around violence reduction. You, you mentioned somewhat modestly that you've got a, a national role in violence reduction. The first time that that role has existed. Uh, yeah, and that's because well, of your work. Well, I suppose so, yeah. I think, I think you know, the work I do in advanced reduction was driven by looking after young boys and girls who've been shot and stabbed who lived in my area and, and seeing them come back. It's not a revolving door. It's just a basically, you would see it in generations. It'd be brothers, sisters, siblings, you know, friends, colleagues who would either come and see us if injuries either returned to us or their, their friends who had beef would be involved in the same situation. And it would, it would be kids from local areas often affected by poverty often people of color and often getting a pretty pretty shoddy deal but outside of their clinical care 
So we would, we would look after these people. They were called these people. These people with these injuries. The stabbing in bed seven. And they would get their hole sewn up. They'd be set on their way. Or they'd get, or they'd get pinched. And they were regarded as bad people because they got stabbed. Rather than victims of injury. And it, it drove me bonkers. So we tried to do something about that. And because the, the, the current systems in the NHS weren't, weren't effective in, in addressing the needs of that community, we had very high re, re, readmission rates because they were people got involved in injury and they would, would have the support in the community to, to navigate a better system. So we built a programme um, with the support of um, a fantastic charity called St. Giles' Trust, um, who <clears throat> we built a, a programme using their lived experience workers and, and parachuted them into um, this very weird and very high-functioning trauma system in the, in the hope that they would be able to affect a change in dynamic. And it was brilliant. They, they, those people, they're incredibly talented caseworkers, meshed seamlessly with our programme, and more, but more importantly, meshed with the needs of the young people and their families in that space and allowed them to navigate the system in hospital and out of it as well. And because they provided ongoing support in the community to navigate the hard bits of actually life change is shining a mirror to your life and seeing what you could do differently and more importantly making that real we found that those young people actually changed their lives didn't come back to hospital got back into education back into training back into employment found themselves found their own voices and readmission rates plummeted you know 35 percent to one percent i know it's a it's a bonkers number first initial results down to one percent running around about eight percent all causes now but still i mean class-leading, world-leading results in terms of readmission rates for our virus production programmes. And that led to um, bigger programmes in London, bigger programmes in the system, and and then me leading work um, in London initially, and then getting a call to do the same sort of thing in, in nationally where I've been for the past three and a half years. And it's been a really tr- interesting transition from running a small programme in the hospital to being asked to answer questions in Parliament and, 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 and for ministers around how we set national strategies for reducing violence, not just within the NHS, but to speak for, speak for as a stakeholder, other bodies, including Greater London and, 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 and um, the government. So, yeah, bit of a jump. What, what, what I'm really interested in is because you, you you meet um, the those that are victims of of knife crime, but they are also often the perpetrator. There's a sort of this vicious cycle, and what what you've managed to do is to to say right, well let's let's go out into society and try and prevent this from happening in the first place. And you've done that through St Giles's Trust and, and the funding you're able to get. Now I live probably 800 metres or so uh, here in East Croydon from where uh, Eliane Andon was sadly killed. Um, what, 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 what lessons can you share, do you think, with your engagement with so many young people? You describe them, I think quite rightly so. We often think these are you know, young hoodlums. They're not. You describe <laughs> them as being energised but rumbleized. I think is a quote I heard from you once. It's, it's maddening, isn't it? Maddening that we regard people by the nature of their injury and defines them. We stigmatise them by excuse. You get hit by a car, you're a victim of a car accident. You get stabbed, it's probably your fault. Your parents are rubbish, and you've got no future. You don't deserve support because you. It was your fault, and that's just completely bonkers. But you're absolutely right. In the context of interpersonal violence in, in terms of knife injury, often you're going to find individuals who are going to who have had happened weapons used on them before and will use them again. We might use them 
another scenario. So yes, people who are stabbed in one day might upset somebody else another day. You might well find an individual stab somebody because they're being threatened by themselves, and there's a bit of a circular argument going over time and distance over on- ongoing beef or long-standing issues in, in that community or that group. That doesn't make that person a, a bad person. It makes it a bad situation. And someone's made the, made, made the least bad choice in that space. Right, and it's our responsibility, our responsibility, collective responsibility, to make that right. So you you treat the injuries. Number one, don't die. Number two, don't be maimed by that. Number three, can we heal you physically and emotionally from your injury? And can we four understand what happened to you and how we how you got here in the first place? And let's be let's be supportive. Let's be let's be collaborative. Let's be kind, and let's see what you actually need. Let's hear your voice and see where it takes you, because. Why can't we use a negative event as a positive stimulus for improvement? Why can't we say, okay, you're in a really bad place right now. You're very, very ill. You may well get pinched afterwards. However, why can't we find out why this happened and make things better in the future? People we work with in the community, out of the community, in our, in our systems, may well have had histories about personal violence. They have what we call lived experience. I call it experience, Yeah. They may have the difference of the criminal justice system, the care system, um, of, of, of previous injury. And that, and, that, and, that, and that gives you a certain narrative, okay? But we can use those skills and that reflection to provide a holistic support to that individual. It can't just be me telling you what to do. Because that's not... I'm an old man who lives in a big hospital with a helicopter. That's not necessarily real. But people who will walk with you and listen to you and challenge you are here to support you. And they're working primarily for you, not for another agenda. The landlord doesn't mean I'm after money, I'm after money. It's, I'm here to make sure you have the best life you possibly can be. And it isn't just about treating your injuries, it's about moving things forward. Now what happened um, close to you was an actually tragedy. But it's not just about the standard narrative we get sold about it being boys in gangs and drugs. One of the really tragic things here was, uh, and it shows, it's not just about boys and gangs. You know, Eliane was a, an unfortunate bystander. It's not just boys and gangs. You know, others get caught up in this as well, which is so tragic. It really is really, really tragic. Think about trauma, Trevor. You can live your life perfectly, right? You can be riding your bicycle perfectly with high vis and a nice helmet on a bright sunny day. The bus turns left and you're gone. And, it's, and you don't blame that person being hit by a bus. Don't, but you'd be the only one being stabbed. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time, aren't you? Wrong place, wrong time. That individual is a victim of toxic masculinity. That's a, victim, that's a victim of a person, of an individual who was empowered both physically and, 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 and emotionally to weaponize those thoughts, okay? Well, ne- never, never challenged, never coordinated, never, never pushed back against and facilitated. Because everybody who could have said to that young person, this is not the way, this is not how... People behave in this society. So let's just get on with it. And we and we and we have to sleep at the wheel. We're sleep at the wheel. Well, one of the things I'm really will be really interesting because I'm I'm a trauma lawyer. So I, I sit down with bereaved families or those um, that are you know really struggling to, to, to deal with their life changing injuries. And, and it's 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 traumatic. I feel a privilege to be able to give that sport, but it, but it's traumatic. But for you. You're right there, the immediate person there trying to save their life. Now, I find it quite familiar. I've had to sort of develop this inbuilt resilience so it doesn't affect me personally. How do you deal with it? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't always deal with it. 
And I think I'm only human, you know, when I see somebody, every, every so often there's an individual, that story or their injuries just affect you and you have to go into a quiet place to think about it. However, I'm protected by lots of things. I've been incredibly well-trained through my career as a healthcare professional. I've got a really solid family behind me and a great support network in terms of friends. My professional colleagues are brilliant and we have we, we make time for each other and ourselves and we have good support networks for our emotional wellbeing. <clears throat> but also I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human being and, a bit, and I'm, I'm from this area. I'm from this lifestyle. I recognise narratives around it. Uh, that, that doesn't make any excuse, but I, but I get it, okay? And I care about I care about these individuals as well as caring for them. So I know... If this young person has has a significant injury, I will do my best to support them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. will do my best to support them, and I will and I will not let that slip. No, I think it's I think it's really sad. Achieving that great good is almost part of the the healing process, isn't it? The, the outcomes you can achieve by I think by it's totally back. totally the most important thing about it. The, the thing about my when you're involved in the moment, in a critical moment, you're providing leadership and practice. That's what you do, and you're an, almost an autopilot. Yeah. The moment you sort of like come out of your body and you're looking down at what's happening, at this young boy fighting for their life, whilst you're doing, you're cutting holes in them and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And afterwards, in that, in that quiet time, you're talking to the family and trying to explain to them what's happened, where their beautiful boy is now a big lump in an intensive care bed, or sadly, sometimes dead. That's a really hard place to be. And seeing how that reaction lands, how that lands with families is very instructive. Now, for me, I have to know that young person died despite rather than because of me and the system that I'm part of. So we have to make sure that our practice is as good as it can be, our, our presence is as good as they can be, and our prevention is as good as it can be. So that individual should not have been there, should not have been harmed, should have been, should have been there to minimise that risk. And that's what I'm, what I'm driven by, but also what I'm comforted by. So if we've, done it, if we've done our best and we can't fix it, that's what happens. We are very good at what we do. We're very, and we're sadly very well practiced as well. And and I know that should a person under our care pass, it's not because of something we've missed, it's because those injuries were were were, were life ending. Yeah, well, you certainly you said before, admission rates tumbled as a result of your initiative. So, you know, congratulations to you on that, Martin. There's a lot more to be done, but if we all do our little bit, we can have an impact. I think you're right, Trevor. The thing about it was was interesting because I, th- I thought about it as I'm on some sort of evangelical crusade, yeah. But the thing about these sort of things is that when you start sharing the message, people buy into because they've all people always think the same thing. They want the best for these young boys and girls. They don't want to see these people coming back. These people coming back to us again. We want this to go away. And even people who are not connected to the to the issue directly feel that pain in that family and that community. So when we show people a better option that works. People engage in it, and it resulted not just in better readmission rate, but also a different change in culture. We started taking interest in those young boys and girls in the beds. We started having those proper conversations. We started saying, you know what, actually, tell me your name, where are you from, what are you interested in, are you a gooner? Well, no one's perfect. And having proper conversations, being pragmatic about it, and more culture changes, team culture changes, conversations changes, and we become a much more diverse in terms of thought practice, people who want to work, people are now attracted to our programme because we're doing violence reduction as well. Therefore, we're attracting different kinds of people into our system, which is changing how we do work, which is changing culture even more. So we're actually doing something much more significant than just doing a bit of work. We're actually trying to create that social engine 
that finds individuals of talent who have found the thing they want to be passionate about and can be developed and promote that practice and in, and become empowered themselves in that space. And the young people, okay, are getting a chance to actually live the lives they actually want rather than they're forced to have, which I think is a really important thing. Two of the other many hats that you wear, one of which you didn't mention, so I'm, I'm going to mention it, um, but one of them you did mention, which is the uh, Deputy Lieutenant. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think believes you can take sheep over... Over one of the bridges, isn't it? But, but oh, that's, more that's a different thing, altog- different thing altogether. But yeah, <laughs> you're a freeman. I'm a, I'm a freeman in the city of London. Yes, and that's and that's that's the sheep thing, and that's something that came from me working in and around the city. I, I, I weirdly enough, I'm from South East London. You can probably tell by the accent. But I but I work in Central London. And I, I trained at Bart, which is actually around the corner. From the, it's actually in the city of London, and um. Over my work with charitable work, I, I was approached by uh, livery companies, and I become I became a, a freeman of a company in the freeman city of London, and that allows me to do the sheep thing. But more importantly, it allows me to work with the city of London, which is a really powerful financial engine, to support the communities of London. And part of the work we do in 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 the city of London is actually to recognise that we have a huge responsibility to those to those to the to our communities that we are part of and serve to ensure the best for people, particularly young people, in this really powerful financial capital. So that's the one thing of it. The lieutenancy thing is another another weird a weird another weird gig that I've got. So I work with um uh, for the Great, Great London Lieutenancy, for Lord Lieutenant Sir Ken Lisa. And um, that role is about supporting the, act- the activity of the monarch within within the London area. And that's part about the honour system, partly about um, visits, partly about making sure that the charitable, charitable arm of the society is coordinated. And we work with faith, we work with community, we work with activists, we work with anybody who works to understand how we can support those activities. And we are very proud of what we can do to ensure that those groups that are so powerful in the community are supported and funded and recognised for activities. So for me, as a Londoner, it's about recognising that we can bring that bring that to the fore as well. So there are there are bits of London that are great. The history of London is fantastic. Traditions of London are fantastic. And they need to be celebrated and shared with the communities in a way that supports them. So from my perspective, one of the things I do in these, in these slightly odd roles is it allows to be a bridge between the history of London and the city, and what it what it stands for in its best circumstances, and making that just into, into into activity now to ensure that young people in London now know that the city of London is on their side and will help them progress to the people that they want to be. And for me, I think it's it's a no brainer. Really, it's a no brainer. You mentioned at the start of that the monarchy. Uh, um, so I, I just because that's the other hat you didn't mention. So um, recently, I, w- I was I was privileged to receive uh, uh, the Senior Leaders Award at the Black Talent Awards uh, in, in Birmingham, Edgebaston. And I, and I felt really proud. And one of the things I did, I took my mum with me, my 86-year-old mum, uh, to the award ceremony. And it was uh, her first ever black tie event and a really special moment with her. But you outdid me because <laughs> you took your mum, uh, Norma, Norma, yeah. to Buckingham yeah. Palace because you are a commander of the British Empire, which you didn't... You didn't mention amongst all those hats. So tell us about that experience. A lot, lot of hats. Lot of hats. Yeah, so I thought it was a scam, actually. I got the email. I'm after me, you know, if you, if you, do you, do you click, click this link for this. And I thought, I thought it was, you know, 
more about you know winning 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 gold and pocket, pocket money into it in the bank account but yes it was true and um i'm a, a commander of the most excellent order of the british empire and the words are a bit conflicting aren't they i command i don't command anything yeah i'm not very excellent at anything um i am british very much very proud of being british very proud of being a black britain very proud of being Jamaican. you're britain. a commander of black excellence that's what he should stand for martin <laughs> and, the, and and the empire empire the dark empire i work in a hospital but nothing more than that and i think and i think for me um I know that the terms are problematic for lots of people, and I and I, and I did think about it myself about about whether or not I should um, acknowledge and accept the award when I was offered it to me. And I thought to myself, you know what, um, this is a really big thing, not just for me, but for the work that I've been doing for such a long time in the communities I've been I've been working with and serving for a period of time. And if it's such that's going to be recognised and celebrated, that's a really good thing. Um, and I think and I think for me that. If we're going to showcase what this country can do for people who have endeavour, okay, and they can be recognised and rewarded in a way that is, you know, internationally renowned, who am I to say no to that? You know, my mum put a shift in. You know, she worked as a, as a, a healthcare assistant. She worked three jobs, a, a, you know, to keep, put me and my sister through school. My sister's done really well in her career. I've done all right in mine. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to share a disservice by not not accepting one of the most significant rewards you can get in this country for, for for working in the charitable sector. And I think that for me is really important. And for her, you know, having put in you know X years chugging away in Southeast London, working at Kings and putting us all all those privations, all those slights, all of those bits that she had to endure just to put us through school. You know. I think for her, she recognised that as a really positive thing. And for me, you know, when I'm trying to say to my mum, you know, I've done you proud. You know, I've, done, I've listened to what you said all those all those days, all those nights, all those time on the knee you spent on your knees praying for my me, me and my sister's well being. Everything you gave up to show me what 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 good could look like. All that counsel, all that support, all that forgiveness, it did count for something. You know, and this this is for us, not just for me. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I'm driven and motivated and inspired to do what I do on the basis that I really try and make my, my parents proud. My, my dad's Windrush Generation 85, mum, Windrush Generation 86. And, you know, if I can make them proud, I know I'm on the right track. And I think you're absolutely right. Norma was undoubtedly incredibly proud. Can, can I take you to the, 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 the bottom rung? So this is... Where it all started, what instilled that mindset? Now, I know your mum worked for the NHS and you were brought up with uh, your sister. Yes. Um, and you went to a regular school. I think uh, it's fair to say some regular people school. that had that. <laughs> regular school yeah. probably ended up doing irregularly bad things. So it, it wasn't a school of privilege by any stretch. So can you just no. take us through the school life? So, so interesting being the nerdy kid with the briefcase, isn't it? Um, I, so I'm not by nature, you know, I'm not a shrinking violet, but I was, I, and I, school was interesting for me. I went, to, I went to local schools. I mean, I was, I was very fortunate, and I, this is, this is very important about this entire podcast and narrative is very important. The first person I remember in my in my primary school education was my was my teacher Basil Morgan, black British school teacher in my second year of primary school, big fro, very black very British, very much himself, and very comfortable in his proficiency. Excellent, yeah? And at the age of six, I saw a man who was knocking it out of the park as a teacher, who everybody loved, who was great at his job, 
who was who was as proud to be a black man as I ever had been and did it brilliantly. And I didn't recognise it at the time. I thought it was just, you know, it's Mr. Morgan. I didn't realise how he was basically like a rocking horse. You know, it was incredibly, he was incredibly rare. You know, the unicorn of teachers. And for me, instilling that expectation early in my life meant that I didn't, I wasn't fearful of actually trying harder. You know, and I've always thanked Baz for what he did. You know, though I, though I didn't have a chance to take it to his face before he passed, sadly. But for him, he's always been an inspiration to me because he was just there, just doing the thing, just doing the job. And that's incredible. It just shows the the importance of having diverse teachers. I never experienced having a black teacher, or in fact, any teacher I can think of, really, of any ethnicity. I always felt through my school years that I, I, I didn't have a chance. It was never going to be good enough. You know, I. I so it's really interesting that he would have got you, you know, and he would have had your... He was just really keen to just to say, you know, because you've got a good reading age, Mark, you've got a really good mum, you know, you're trying really hard, you're a good lad. I know you get into trouble at school, I know you're quite chatty, I know, you get, I know you get, you're a bit naughty, but actually you're a good kid. And when it came to me going to secondary school, because I couldn't get into the grammar school because I didn't fit, didn't fit the demographic, I don't think. I didn't pass the interview. He said to my mum, go to my old school. It's not a great school, but they will look after the mum because they get they get kids like me and him. And he was absolutely right. The school now closed down. Never, never shone as an academic institution, okay? But they did spend time on me. They let me explore myself, let me give my lessons, let me get me a bit of time. And the school was punchy. Kids in my school, more kids in my school went to prison, went, went to university. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a great place. And we were lucky we had some great sports stars in there. Remember David Rowcastle? Pay yeah, for Arsenal? Yeah. Pay for England? Yeah. He was in the year below me. Brilliant kid. But but by no means the most talented person in his class, let alone let alone in the school of football. But the most coachable. Yeah, but the most coachable. And the amount of talent that was thrown away in that community because it wouldn't engage it wouldn't engage, wouldn't engage, wouldn't engage. It's incredible you way of putting it, isn't it? The most coachable. You know, the, the the desire we have, the appetite we have to learn. We want to be um, improved. We want to learn. And that's obviously the appetite you had was to, to be the best you could be, guided yeah. by your teaching. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I mean, for me, at the time, my only real motivation was to get out, to get out of Lewisham, because there were too many people getting stabbed. It was, des- it was just too desperate. I didn't want to be like my family members and like my, you know, people I live in the corner who were just living hand to mouth. I didn't want to be a hustler. I didn't see the need to spend my entire life just looking over my shoulder for what I had and that having it been under threat all the time. I wanted to actually to own something that I could own my own success. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, same in the parents I meet, even now, their first statements to me about their kids are they, that he's not in a gang, he hasn't been to prison. And I said to myself, what kind of expectation are you setting for your child if that's what you're saying as you're opening Gambit to you? That that boy, that girl, could be a, a superstar, astronaut, could be anything they want to be, but you can't start off by setting expectations that low about them. If that's what you're broadcasting about your own children, what are you saying to them at home about their level of aspiration? And I think, you know, for me... I had low aspirations when I was young. I wanted to want to be an aircraft mechanic and get out of Lurshan, but it wasn't until the exams came through I had to stick around there. And my mum said to me, look, you've got to give this a go. You know, my teacher said, you've got to give this a go. I didn't think I was ever going to go to uni or going to be, you know, medicine was, was never wasn't on my radar until the very last part of it. I just applied probably just to satisfy aspirations for 
my mum and for my teachers rather than for me. And that probably explains why I found medical school so, so difficult, because it was quite a challenging environment, going from a 30% black sixth form centre in Grofton Park to going to a medical school. I've been going for, it's now not 100 years. I was the only white person, only black person there who was a student. It's actually quite funny, actually, yeah, because, I mean... Um, um, there were, there, were, there were no black students in my year at medical school. Was, I, I, I walked, I, my old man, um, God rest him, drove us up in, in these in, them, in these Austin um, Allegro, yeah? I mean, my first day at medical school, yep. go up there, go, go into, you, drive, you drive into College Hall in, in Charterhouse Square, right the Barbican, okay? You go into this, in, into this it's, they shoot Poirot outside of the front of this piece there, so it's, so it's quite posh. Go into this gated area and... Um, they're playing croquet on the lawn, okay? They're in all these kids playing croquet. There's a library, there's a quad, there's squash courts, all these kids. There were children, there were kids driving their own cars, all right? And this is this is this is like, you know, this is the eight. Like, How can you afford your own car? You know? Kids eating their kids eating this and that, and they're eating they're eating foie gras and donkeys and all sorts. I'm going, I'm not in going, I'm sitting there with a packet of broken biscuits and, and to process cheese, going, what the heck's going on? I mean, I might as well have been on the moon, all right? So it was a complete, it was a complete, complete about face for me. It was like a different, and to be fair, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't always great. I mean, you're not, you, you, if you, if you go back to the eighties, there's a lot of casual racism, a lot of casual sexism, a lot of bias in there, a lot of, a lot of untamed talk wouldn't happen now. Yeah. But I was quite a robust kid having grown up in South East London. I, I was used to being jumped by people who didn't, didn't think very much of me. And that wasn't, that was my mindset. It's funny, isn't it? It's funny though, that back then, we were. I, I was used to being chased down the road by skinheads. I was yeah. used to being called names. Uh, I, you know, I was used to not fitting in, being the only black kid in the in, in, yeah. the, in first the class. Yeah, first of the only. First of the only. Always first of the yeah. only. Always first of the only, yeah. I remember, so I used to come out of New Cross, New Cross Gate tube station when Mill were at home, yeah? And the guy on the, the guy on the door would say, just run. Run. If I didn't run, they'd get me. And I'd run up, I'd run up, I'd run up. Tanner's Hill up to my, up towards Brockley towards my mum's. That would be that would be a normal thing every other every other week. Yeah, that would be yeah. what I expect to happen. And I, so I didn't think. You know, I thought the, the, the sort of mindless barb from public school boys is nothing compared to the big, actually something from the bicycle chain. It's no big deal. And med school was med school was hilarious. I mean, I, I had a brilliant time there. I mean, I I was quite good. I played a bit of sport, and um, you know, but I found it academically quite challenging. So I didn't really know how to play the game, which is really bizarre. I don't think you like me. We, we've remained ourselves, our authentic selves. So, so if you're in that environment, how is it? I, you said something earlier on which made me laugh at you because I remember when I first, similar experience when I was at law school, and when I got my first job, I felt I needed to try and change. And the reason why I laughed is because you, you mentioned briefcase. And I went out and I bought <laughs> my first briefcase. I felt that that's what lawyers look like. So how yeah. did you manage <laughs> To remain your authentic self, I think you haven't really got a choice. I mean, I think you can, you can, you can, you can put on whatever you like, yeah. But when the pressure's on, you are yourself. Okay, so you can't, you can't be anything other than who you really are. And don't get me wrong, I've tried, I've tried to try to try to fit in, okay, and tried to hide and tried to be as you know, take the bass out of my voice and be a little bit more, you know, a bit, a bit more gentrified, sound like Prince Charles, yeah. But actually, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you can't hide. If you're a six foot tall, 18 and a half stone rugby player, you're not going to hide anywhere. Yeah. You just yeah. got to be who you are. So let's just go with it. And, and actually, you know, you just, you've just got to play that, play your own, play your cards as they are. 
and as you go through life, okay, you want to be something else. You want to be this. You want to be shinier and smarter and taller and thinner and ever. And, and you want to be more white in some places and more black in other places. And because you, you don't, you don't fit in here, you don't fit in there. The bottom line is you are who you are. And you're the, you're yeah. the, you're the, you're the, you're the amalgamation of your lived experiences, your, your background, your aspirations and your talent. And you owe it to your talent to live, to be, to fulfill that. Yeah. So if you can't, if you're spending, and, 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 and but a lot of my times, when I when I reflect on why I struggled in medical school initially, it, because I was trying to be so many things at the same time, I spent most of my my bandwidth was was, was would fill up with me trying to fit into a room. Do I do I talk like this or talk like that? Do, do I stand like this? Do I wear that? Do I can I can I say this? Can I say that? And I got so confused I could say nothing in the end. And I lost years of my life and years of and and countless time trying to be who I wasn't. Yeah. yeah, I can really and relate it, to that, and and it's just a matter of accepting that you are who you are, and 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 you know what you the, what you say and the way you say it is perfect for you, perfect for you, not anybody else, but perfect for you. And how I'm not very good at articulating myself, but I saw you my hands. I talk my hands quite a lot because I'm not very good at. I had a stutter when I was younger. I was quite I had a bit of a stutter, and I wasn't very good at finding words, and so I I used a lot of hand stuff, and I was a little bit spectrum. I had very poor eye contact, so I had to learn how to be norm neuronormative because I was actually pretty pretty spectrum as a kid and I, th and I think that helped me to articulate in other ways and I took a lot, use a lot of metaphor because I can't I can't find the word sometimes but I think that once you accept who you are and recognize that your backstory is your strength it's your superpower you know yeah. my diversity is my superpower I have got experiences I've got I've got time in service, I have seen and done things these people never see, right? And I understand yeah. the world in a different way and I have different solutions which are entirely valid, okay? And actually appropriate, more appropriate than what's in there and present. And that allows me to be, to take that positive, to be brave, okay? Because failure is what I would say. If I just stand still, I'll still fail. So why not just have a go, see what happens? I've said that I've spent the first half of my life conscious that I was black, the second half celebrating it. Yeah, you know, I, well, I don't think really. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, I don't think. I, I, I mean, do I celebrate being bad? Do I celebrate being tall? I don't really celebrate being fat. I think I just it's just who I am, and I think that you know, I always struggle with a little bit about you know with praise and the sort of reflected glory because I'm just doing what I think I should be doing. You know, I've got great faith in people. I've got. I, I, I want to do things the right way. I want to make sure that all my I's are dotted and T's across, which might make me a little bit slower to get to progress. But I absolutely know that everything I've got, I've earned, not been given. And for me, because of my, my sort of very working class background, earning stuff rather than being gifted, it's very important to me. Yeah? yeah. Don't get me wrong, I've got a huge amount of privilege now, yeah, because I've got all these hats and titles, but that stuff's been earned through long, yeah. hard practice, through lots and lots of failure and reflection. Okay, and making sure because people didn't want to give me a go all the time. Lots of people were very positive about me and, and wanting to, to 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 support me, but as, as as a bit of a risk, yeah. And some people actively didn't want to take that risk and didn't want to have that person in that room because it because it was it, it was it was a, it was a change of culture. It wasn't wasn't comfortable, and I get that. Do you think do you think you were helped with your mindset because your mum was quite strict, wasn't she? So. <laughs> you know, she, 
kept you on the straight and narrow. Like, I can, I can oh, still oh. feel the, the. I still, I still, I had still down and walk into the room just in case. The front room on the Sunday, the front room is still, still not happening. So, yeah, and I think, and I think that the there's something to be said, something to be said for structure, yeah, and boundaries, yeah. Thinking of kids who are who are who are who can be easily swayed by circumstances, yeah. But I think it's about consistency, yeah. I knew my mum was reliably going to be there, and whatever she was doing, I know what I know what we were going to do. I know we could be, and then she always had my back, yeah. And I think, and I think that for me, you know, um, you can you can you can dismiss parental activity if you want to. But whatever that parental system looks like, maybe one parent, two parents, four parents, no parents, it needs to be consistent. It needs to be loving. Yeah. It needs to be forgiving because, because kids make mistakes all the time. You know, yeah, yeah. you're picking up rubbish in the afternoon or prick, broken crockery or apologizing to someone for breaking the window. That's what, that's what parents start doing. Parental, parental love isn't, isn't, isn't about gifts and nice holidays and, and uh, praise. It's about, forgiveness it's about being there it's about being absolutely there and about having that kid's back you know whenever stuff down when, when anybody else turned their back on me in my life when everybody else had no time for me when everyone had an issue i would go home mum would say it's going to be all right it's going to be all yeah. right and she was right she was right because because don't get me wrong i've done incredibly well career-wise not in not in quick time not rapidly. It's taken longer than perhaps it could have done, and I'm and I'm not embittered by that. This is very important because the journey was very enriching. The journey was very empowering, and I know that everything I've got, I've had to work for. So there's no there's no there's nothing in my mind that you think that I, that I got here because I was lucky. You know, it wasn't it wasn't given to me for reasons. And I think and I think for me because I've got these I've got this sort of ever working class hangout, a bit of a bit of an imposter thing going on. I need to make sure that the internal and external markers are all there for me so I can make sure I can move forward. But it comes from that very, very solid parental background I have there, you know. And it isn't it isn't a traditional two parent family, you know, it's very much it's very much what a lot of people I see and I work with see. But it was actually very, very consistent and very supported by a large community of other women in South London who would who would keep an eye out for me and give me keep around here if I've been naughty as well. Yeah, there's something, when I think of your mum, I think very much of sort of Mary Seacott. So, uh, a strong, strong woman who uh, determined, giving, caring, compassionate, you know, really uh, was able to overcome whatever the challenges were thrown at her. Your mum did her three jobs, you know, resilient. But actually what she's channeled into you is this determination just to do the best you can and to care. Um, can, I, can I just take you to the middle of the ladder. Yeah. So these are the obstacles and challenges because um, what you talked about there was a sort of the external and internal frameworks that give you support, particularly internally. So how you are as a person, external, your family. Yet you've been working in an environment, and I'm touching on COVID here, in an environment in which you became actually one of the faces of COVID. So you see on TV all the time talking about it. And that was actually quite important. Important because there were a disproportionate number of people from our community that didn't want to take up the vaccine. But yep. also there are a disproportionate number of people, NHS staff, that were actually suffering at the hands of COVID, whether it be because of lack of PPE or whatever else. How has it been you working in that environment, in that framework, 
where you could see the disproportionate impact on, on our community. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, because healthcare workers are disproportionately, you know, they're, they're overrepresented by in terms of um, demographics where people of colour, and, and and they and they were in the in the in the most hard pressed areas, most likely areas to get COVID, and they and they and they did badly. Um, and I think that the issue around um, vaccine hesitancy, as it was labelled, okay, um, isn't that? It isn't it's healthcare hesitancy because people quite rightly were surprised that they hadn't been ignored for decades. They were being told to do stuff and they were being, being you know, pilloried for not engaging in a process they, had, they knew nothing about. And where we learned the very good lesson as healthcare providers was actually have that conversation, to go out to community, to understand the nature of your concern and to explain it, right? And to be humble and to be transparent and to say, and to be honest, I know this bit, don't know that bit, you know? And as I, when I was working in the hospital, I became a vaccinator. So I could see, I, I was quite fortunate, I knew one of the people who developed the um, Oxford vaccine and I, had, I, I touched base with him and his team. And also I knew, and I, I read the literature and I knew where we were with it. And I could only, I could see, I could see the only way out of this, you know what it was like in, in lockdown, in, part, in lockdown two, I thought we were going to lose the country at one point. And I was, you know, there was nowhere to go. And I think that I could see how this could play out badly. And I could see that we were not getting the messaging right. So I started vaccinating and I started talking to the healthcare support workers. I started talking to you, I was vaccinating and said, what's the issue? I said it myself, I will do it for you. You can come to me about it and have the conversation. And I recognised that that actually had some degree of leverage, yeah? So when, when it became obvious that there's something that needs to be said and I was asked if I'd volunteer my voice to it, I thought it was appropriate to do that because I think it's important that we have these conversations. People quite rightly have reservations around all kinds of authority and which healthcare is one of them. The NHS is seen as a, a big uncaring beast. And I think that we have to be humble enough to get on to the ground and have those conversations. Now, I'm not saying we convince anybody that, that the vaccination made sense. I'm not convinced we're ever going to convince anybody in that situation. But I do believe that it was safe. I do believe it had a huge effect. I do believe it was done very well in that regard. So it was dealt out and given out appropriately. Compared to other parts of the world, much more, much more conflicted. But for me... The learning from COVID was a bit more about what you do in public health, about being that person who's prepared to advocate and act as a bridge between the science and medicine and the community that need that support, to share the messaging, to understand the challenges around it and to navigate that space. I want people to engage in their own healthcare, to own their own healthcare, to use the healthcare system as a, you know, to advocate and support their practice, be able to voice your concerns, voice your dissent, navigate your system, control your own care, to be, to work on wellness rather than illness. Yeah. So you you keep yourself well. What, what's valid for COVID is valid for diabetes and hypertension. Yeah? yeah. And if you don't engage yeah. in those in those processes, you end up with strokes and heart attacks, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And, and losing yeah. toes and feet. Confidence and that, and that's, is an important thing. Confidence and trust yeah. is an important thing. Uh, you know, you talk about the number of black men in particular that suffer from prostate cancer. Um, you know, it, it, it's real. And so we, we've got to be taking care of ourselves yeah, uh, having, having someone like you in the, your position, I think, really helps that because well, there are these labels, you know, a vaccine hesitancy, uh, misinformation. So things like Tuskegee would be dismissed as if they they never happened. And you get you know people like the French doctor who spoke around you know testing of the vaccine in in, in Africa. So these it all gets a bit mixed up. But then you can see more clearly if you've got somebody like you presenting 
the, the reality of why this is important. And you're right, and there is a, there is a bit around um, being a safe pair of hands and being a reason. Because my, my credibility doesn't come from my knowledge of the COVID vaccine. My credibility comes from being plugging away for 30 years in the NHS as a clinician and doing the right thing for the community I serve. And I think one of the things about one of the things we don't really talk about as being being uh, being black leaders is the visibility piece around it, because um, yeah. although I I see myself as 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 dad, and you know an MG at work, you know, and 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 Martin to you, people see me as some figure, some face on the website, yeah, and they and they and they and make assumptions about me that aren't necessarily correct, yeah. and I'm I, I, I'm required to be a spokesperson for my ethnicity. Rather than just to be the person that I am, and I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a standard bloke. I'm a bit weird. I get that, yeah. So, I, but I represent what I hope is a transparent version of myself, okay. And, I, and I'm not perfect by any means, but I am a very proud black person, a very proud Jamaican, a very proud British person, a very proud of working in the NHS, a very proud that I do the things that I do, and very proud I've been allowed to be successful in those spaces. And that's been built upon a system of education that was free at point of use, a, 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 a healthy system that allowed me to get free at point of access. It's about me getting free school meals, it's about me living in a site that was warm and dry and good housing. It's about me being allowed to pursue my ambitions without being, without being encumbered by issues around costing because we had no money. Yeah. And about being allowed to progress in that career, albeit at a pace I found, found slow for myself, but to move forward and to, and to attain the seniority that my talent merits. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, I'm, I'm blessed with a firm which has uh, allowed me to do that, but, but it's also recognised that me having a profile isn't me showing off. Actually, what it's doing, it's encouraging and inspiring other people. But in terms of the framework in which you work, Martin, I mean, it may seem controversial, but that it is still a struggle for people to break through to, you know, band seven, band eight, um, within the NHS, if you're a person of colour, if I told you how much time goes into the conversations about trying to to break barriers and make the diverse and la, 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 and nothing seems to change, not rapidly, yeah. And there's initiative after initiative, piece after piece, and it doesn't seem to attract individuals because the culture isn't quite right in any organisation. People who I know have got talent who work in healthcare, work in other organisations because they, they they feel welcome there, they feel supported, they feel heard there. And we need to we need to understand that our organisations need to change to be welcoming to everybody. It's, I can talk very vastly about my ethnicity, yeah, because I know what that looks like to feel to feel to feel closed down, shut down, unheard in those spaces. But I do know that when we've got when we've moved into the space, and I've been in that place, we've been able to we've been able to demonstrate proficiency, competence, to be myself in those spaces and still be hugely effective, and to and to support the development of other individuals from diverse backgrounds into roles where they can develop and show their true strengths as well. And I think that it's about, it's about, it's not just about being in that person, not just be there and getting up to a level and pulling the ladder up. Look at me, I'm fine. It's about saying, my responsibility is to make sure that everybody who sees me from a distance can meet me if they want to. Everybody wants yeah. to treat, if you want to be your wealth work experience in London, give me a shout, we'll transfer something out for you, we'll get you up there. If you're good enough, we'll get you in. And if you're not, well, we'll find something else for you. And it's about can I can I identify individuals irrespective of demographics who've got talent who I can support? And my job is not to be selective and saying you've got to be this or that or the other, but you've got talent, I can help you smooth that forward. And I'll look at everybody rather than just some people. 
And I think that we, my desire is to create that engine that gets people into that system, do what they want to do. And I, we've had great success in supporting um, people from all kinds of backgrounds to become healthcare professionals and do really good work. And I, and I think it's one of the absolute responsibilities leaders yeah. to lead and develop. If you're going, if you're going to be in this role, it isn't just about doing the work because I can't do my job pretty much, but about actually uh, doing the bit, the bit okay. that matters, <laughs> the bit that really matters to me is that can you can you inspire people to train in that practice? Can you inspire them to be themselves in that practice? Be themselves in that practice without being somebody else? Can they shortcut the years I had of trying to fit in just by being themselves? And can we create those create those leaders who are who are authentic, who are correct, who do what they want to say, and actually are being the people they need to be. Because from my perspective, okay, the thing, the thing I despise most in people who, who see, they lose themselves in the roles. And they're embittered yeah. by the journey. The journey's embittered them, and they lose yeah. sight of who they are. They become some sort of weird amalgam of sound bites and nonsense. They have no, yeah. They have no core. And I, and I, I don't think that's, I don't think, I don't think the NHS deserves that. I don't think any health service does. I don't think anybody deserves that as a, as a practitioner or any, any kind of endeavor. We should be who we are. Okay. And you don't, you, you can't hollow yourself out just to be successful. Yeah. You've got to maintain your yeah, core you, values. You and if you, if you lose that, if you lose your sense of self, you're, 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 you're nobody. So you mentioned before you've got um, two boys, Marcus and Antonio, and, and I've yeah. got two boys. Rear Rocker, and I've got a daughter called Kia. And you also mentioned that you uh, adopted. Yeah. Um, now, this is really close to my heart because I adopted uh, my daughter. And the reason why it's close to my heart is because um, there are a disproportionate number of kids from ethnic minority backgrounds that are mm. in, in care in homes. So for me, it was a really important thing to do. H- how have you found, this is really for those that might be thinking about um, adopting, um, because we do need uh, more people to come forward and adopt. How have you found the experience as a whole? It's funny, isn't it? Um, my sons are the best thing. You know, I absolutely love them. They might love me back. I'm not sure about that just yet. Um, <laughs> sure. with, with all the things I've done in my life that, that give me pride, I'm proud of our son to be the, for the young men that they are going to become, and they and they are brilliant kids. They're not straightforward, but they, neither is their dad, you know. And the process of adoption in the UK is <clears throat> protracted, and intrusive, and frustrating, and overly long. Um, and yet, at the end of it, I've got a son. You know, and I, and 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 it's a privilege to see those boys grow up. It's a privilege to be to be their dad and to be their supporter and to be their custodian. How old were they at the age of adoption? Three, so quite old in the adoption thing. I think everybody wants to get a baby, um, and we got we got toddlers, and I think and I think that was made it slightly easier because because they were because they're because they're dual heritage kids. They they um they fall into the biggest lump of kids who are necessarily yeah. well, who are who are who are. <clears throat> Up for adoption, left in, in in the care of a secure estate, and I think you know, from my from my perspective, I think you know, um, I, I find it, I find it very sad that all these kids have such 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 life. But I, but I don't want to frame it in terms of of, of it being pity uh, or any of those sort of things. It's an absolute joy, you know, 
my partner and I decided to 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 to, to become parents, but we didn't we, we couldn't do it a certain way. And um, but the, but but I grew up in the West Indian background where we we brought up everybody. You know, we didn't where you were, who your who your parents were, your blood was didn't really matter. You know, you grew up in the family. You were, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had so many kids in my family it. who were, my mum was aunt to everybody, <laughs> and and vice versa. I did everybody's house. So I got so fat probably, but um, and so it wasn't really a feature for me about being about blood. It was about being family. So having the boys and the, the boys as our as our kids was the most natural thing in the world for me. And I think that you know. I recognise adoption is difficult. I know for a lot of people they find it difficult because it's a very another authority piece. There's a lot of judgment around it about your financials and your backstory, and they ask lots of really in, yeah. intrusive questions that aren't very comfortable. And it's and it's quite a challenging time for you if you're in a relationship to go through all the backstory and and, and play that all stuff out. Yeah. And there's lots of interviews and lots of lots of lots of thresholding that you don't need to do to be able to be a biological patient biological parent you haven't got to do anything you've got to turn up and there you are and there's a baby but for me i've got to do i've got to, I've got to, I've got to do a fire a fire check here's a fire check on my house you know you've yeah. got a fire check on your house you know and then you know certificates and this and gcse's and that and income and whatever just to, you know with none of that yeah. none of that's valid for anything else and it, and at some point you think to yourself why am i doing this to myself i've got yeah. i've got a perfectly good life you know Everything's going fine, and I've been doing plugging away at this for two years, and no, no line of no, 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 no victory in sight. And then, there you go, there you go. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I had two birth children, and so the approach, the attitude towards me was, well, why are you doing this? Are you on a crusade? So it actually became harder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I was trying to do what I thought was the right thing. Right, so Martin, I said that. Uh, and we're going to end this with what I think is something which just is the embodiment of Martin B. Griffiths. This says it all about you. And I'm not going to pretend that I am the creator of this. Because the creator was Nick Elphick. Now, you <laughs> featured on Bill Bailey's portraits. I think there were four portraits, wasn't there? And there was, a, there was another one, another piece. Yeah. He's yeah. a figure to sculpture. And if anybody hasn't watched this, they've got to watch... It on iPlayer, Bill Bailey, uh, Nick Elphick, and Martin Griffiths. Now, it's incredible because um, it follows your journey in many ways. You talk about your journey as a, as a surgeon, you talk about your home life and everything else. And he has somehow embodied this magically uh, in, in, in these sculptures. So just, I mean, what was that experience like? Because you, you were so moved when you were looking at them. You were really, really touched. But what was that like? It's mad, you know, but really, really uplifting. Um, I, I don't know how I fell into this one. I, I got agreed to, to meet with people and ended up getting on this, in this crazy program. And, met, and I met Bill Bailey, lovely man. And I met Nick. Mm. Nick, is, Nick is an absolute force of nature. He's a big bear of a guy. Yeah. Hugely engaging, hugely passionate, hugely talented. And we had some really great conversations. And the thing about that is that he took the time to find out about me. Didn't just take photographs. And you can see the difference between he gets me, he understands me. And those sculptures say things about me that I can't say myself. But he also met your mum as well, didn't he? That was an important Because I think, I think it was important that he got the backstory because I think he, he didn't be, I mean, to, to explain, I can't explain what it was like growing up in the, in, in, in the 1670s because I was, I was a kid. I mean, and whatever privations I've gone through in my life were nothing, nothing to what our parents went through. 
you know i don't want to think what you know i don't want to think about what they did you know to 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 put food on the table you know what they went through you know just to shop and to live in 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 london in those days so to hear her share her reflections you know about what life was like what bringing me up was like what it feels like to be my 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 parent was important to him and, and important to me because I, I hadn't really heard that myself either it's kind of interesting that we hadn't had those those things you don't talk about you know in, in my family you don't talk about you know pride and that kind of stuff it's not it's not the sort of thing we do um so that process was really interesting and and you know actually bringing bringing the family to see it for the first time it was, it was a complete shock to me i wasn't expecting it it's a huge amount of work it's all incredible it's an incredible standard of of work it's and it's and i i brought my my dear friends there who i know and i trust um and people i'm very connected to um and i must have been they, and, they, <laughs> and they got it they got it they got it as well and they got they got it and they saw it for what it was, and they said, "Yeah, it's spot on." And um, I was very moved because um, I'm not a person who likes to crow about what I've done. I've got a long list of things, I've, boxes I've ticked, um, but it's never been done in the service of me. It's always been done in the service of others, and, I, and, I, and my best work has always been done in the development of other people. It's it's never been for or about me. I don't think that's way I'm built, um, and and, and um, I hope that those 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 um, artworks show not not the not the me, but the process, but the willingness to engage, the willingness to succeed, the willingness to share, the willingness to encourage, and inspire, and to challenge. That's what I want people to take from that. Not the not the face, not the eyes, not the hands. But the actual, there's somebody who actually cares enough about things to make a difference and do that by supporting people and presses to make that, that, that life and that society fairer and more achievable. You know, some people sadly choose to put a knife in their hands. Yeah. Um, what, what, what you've demonstrated and what, what the portraits demonstrate is the power of putting a scalpel in your head. You know, what you've done, uh, and I, when I watch it, and I actually watched it again, I watched it twice, uh, and I didn't watch it in readiness for this. I watched it twice because it moved me so much. It was the connection between you and what you do on a daily basis. I'm not going to call it a job because it's not. It's almost a calling, isn't it? The connection with your mother and family and the way you've just climbed this ladder without looking down for fear of falling, but because you know what's on the next rung is so important. And then having got there, the way you've just been the ladder. I mean, you're, you're the epitome, I think, of what all of those involved with Windrush had hoped for. And I'm really, really proud to know you and call you a friend, Marty. Um, so thank you for today. Thank you for being the ladder. No, too kind, mate. Such lovely words, but they're not, in other words, never about me, my friend. Always about what we can do. And I think, you know, the thing to take away is that everybody has the power to make changes, yeah? But it's about you looking towards people who may not look or sound like you and say, like, how can I help, you know? And the things that have been most powerful to me in my life, the people who helped me, not because I had an agenda, because they could. Yeah. If with fair opportunity and the right mindset, you can make a difference. 100%. 
100%. Beaver said. Thank you for joining us for the You Triumph podcast. I've been your host, Trevor Sterling, and this has been a journey of triumphs and the mindset that makes them possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, like, and leave a review. Your support helps others discover the show and the valuable insights shared. Join us next time as we continue to unravel the stories and strategies for succeeding in life. Remember, you triumph if you believe. And if you've achieved, one must not aspire simply to climb the ladder, but to be the ladder.